0: Today's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, and may be found on page 1202 in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is the word of the Lord. Your Majesty, if you were king, you wouldn't be afraid of anything? Not nobody!
1: Not know-how! Not even a rhinoceros? Imposterous. How about a
0: hippopotamus? Why, I'd
1: thrash him from top to bottom us.
0: Supposing you met an elephant?
1: I'd wrap him up in cellophane. What about we were a brontosaurus? I'd show him who was king of the forest. How? How?
0: <laughs>
1: Courage. What
0: makes a king out of a slave? Courage.
1: What makes the flag on the mast away? Courage. What makes the elephant charge his tusk in the misty mist or the dusky dusk? What makes the muskrat guard his musk? Courage. What makes the sphinx the seventh wonder? Courage.
0: What makes the dawn come up like thunder? Courage. What makes the hot and top so hot?
1: What puts the ape in cut? What have they got that I ain't got? Courage. Courage. You could say that again. Oh, That's a classic courage. What is it? Here's a pretty good definition. Courage is the quality of mind or spirit that enables you to face danger, fear and difficulty with confidence and resolution. And you know what? Every single person in here this morning needs it. We need it. We're just like the cowardly lion. We need courage. Some of you are single. You need courage to stay sexually pure. Others of you are students. You need courage to speak up on your college or high school or middle school campuses. In seven weeks, it's going to be Easter Sunday. We've designated that as as an invite a friend Sunday. It's a challenge for all of us to find somebody to invite someone who doesn't have a church home. That takes courage, doesn't it? To reach out and to invite somebody to join you for church. You are going, many of you, back to work tomorrow. It takes courage to live out grace and truth in your jobs. Some of you are parents. You need courage. Courage to confront your son or your daughter about his or her behavior, right? Some of us are church leaders. We need courage to lead our church, to not let UPC be a place that is comfortable. But rather, a church that is on a mission. Some of us are people with cancer. Others are unemployed. Some have spouses who are not here today because your spouse doesn't share your faith. Some of you battle depression and loneliness every single day. Some will go home after service to an empty house. Others of you are nearing retirement age. You don't know where the money's going to come from in a few years. See, you guys need courage to face a new day, to keep hoping, to keep praying, to keep loving and serving, to keep dreaming of a better future. You see, we could go around the room and cite all kinds of ways that you and I need courage. Where does it come from? Where does courage come from? We're going to talk about that this morning. We've been studying the book of First Peter for the last, oh, about six weeks or so. It's a series that I've called Fighting for Joy because Peter wrote this letter to a group of Christians who lived in Asia Minor who were suffering persecution much like uh, Valentinus and his contemporaries did under Claudius II. Peter wrote this letter so that they might be encouraged to fight for their joy and in many ways every single line of First Peter is about courage. So we're going to talk about that this morning. Now this passage that I've chosen for us today is just the next one as we move through the book. That's one of the things that I I like to do. I like to preach through books so that we're forced to take every single piece of it and look at it seriously. Last week, Matt preached on verses 8 through 17 of chapter 3, and today we're going to cover verses 18 through 22, the passage that Nick read a little while ago. Now, it's a very short passage, but if you were listening to it as he read it, you see how complicated this passage of Scripture is. In fact, Martin Luther said about this passage that we just are are looking at today. Martin Luther said, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage, perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I don't know for a certainty just what Peter means. (laughs) And you think I do? (laughs) Well, I think I've got some handle on it I'm going to talk to you about. But it is definitely one of those passages where it's easy to miss the forest for the trees tell you what I wanted to do this morning is cover a couple of trees and kind of get them out of the way so that we can then focus the rest of our attention on the forest. Because the big picture of this passage is clear, it's beautiful. But there are a couple of these trees that are a bit distracting and I'd like to cover them a little bit and tell you what I think they mean and uh, admit what I think. Don't understand as well. So let's cover a couple of these problems, interpretation problems. And by the way, don't be surprised or shocked when you run into interpretive problems in the Bible. Wouldn't you expect that if a book, a valentine, if you will, were given to us by the infinite God of heaven and earth who knows everything, if he gave us a book to read, wouldn't you expect that at some point we will not understand it? He is infinite. We're finite. He has the mind of God, we are just little puny brains trying to figure things out. And so sometimes there are things about which Christians differ as they read the same Bible but come up with different conclusions. Don't let that destroy your faith. Rather, let it be a challenge for you to dive in and dig in and see what the Holy Spirit leads you to believe about things. So two trees, two problems in this passage. The first one is in verses 18 through 20. Look at the second half of verse 18, where it says that he, that is Jesus, was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And in my version, the NIV, it's capital S for Holy Spirit. In some of the versions that you have, it might be a little s. Whether it's the Holy Spirit or his Spirit, it's impossible to know. But... um, He was made alive by the Spirit or in the Spirit, through whom or through which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, isn't that a bit puzzling? Where did Peter get the idea of the ark in the midst of this chapter on suffering? Why does he bring in Noah? And above all, what prison is he talking about? And who are the prison, the uh, spirits in this prison? Who or what are they? That's what I want to try to struggle with for you, you for just a few minutes. A number of theories have been put forward about that particular question. Who are these spirits in prison and what did Jesus do with them and why? Why are they there and how did Jesus get there? A number of theories. One of the theories is that after Jesus died on the cross, he in his spirit went to hell and preached the gospel to people who died during the flood and gave them a second chance to be saved. Now, I just want to tell you that that is an impossible interpretation. For a couple of reasons. Number one, the Bible nowhere teaches that Jesus went to hell after his death. I know that we say, and Christians have said for centuries, in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, right? But we do not believe that that means literally he went to hell. Rather, he didn't have to go to hell. Jesus' spirit went to heaven. We believe that descent into hell is talking about the wrath of God that he experienced, the torment of hell, the punishment of hell hell on the cross but not that he literally went to hell but more importantly the bible nowhere teaches that you get a second chance to be saved after you die so we got to toss that theory out hebrews 9 27 says that man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment so there is not a second opportunity after one has died to repent and be forgiven and be saved so jesus didn't go to hell and give people a second chance So there are two theories, though, that really are very plausible. Let me tell you what these are and tell you which one I favor. Possibility number one about these spirits in prison is that the resurrected Christ, during his ascension to heaven, as he passed through the heavenly regions, proclaimed his victory over the fallen angels. The way it says here, as Jesus ascended to heaven, He proclaimed His victory over the fallen angels who had been imprisoned. It says in 2 Peter chapter 2, they had been imprisoned in gloomy dungeons, waiting until the day of judgment. Maybe that's right. Maybe that is what is being talked about here by Peter. That Jesus pro- preached or proclaimed doom upon the fallen angels. He proclaimed His victory over Satan and his demonic forces. As he ascended to heaven. And that would be a possible interpretation of those verses. But I go with a second interpretation. And it goes like this. That when Noah was building the ark, way back when, when Noah was building the ark, back in the early book, the, the early chapters of Genesis, the spirit of Christ was in Noah then. We're told in second Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so this theory is that the Spirit of Christ was in Noah back when he was building the ark, preaching righteousness, preaching repentance to the people who were alive and living on earth then, but they disobeyed and did not believe Noah's message, so they are in, they are in hell now. They are spirits in prison now. But when the Spirit of Christ was in Noah preaching to them They were very much alive. Does that make sense? So that's a possible way to look at it. That's the way that I look at it. That when Noah was building the ark, the spirit of Christ was in Noah, preaching to disobedient people who are now in hell. Whether the second theory I gave you or the third theory is the better one, or perhaps there are more. And there are. There are several other ideas out there but whatever is right I don't know for sure but just remember this phrase and we're going to come back to it later that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison remember that hang on to that Jesus preached to the spirits in prison now that's one of the trees that I think we needed to kind of get out of the way let's look at the second one the second one is in verses 20 through 21 would you look at the second half of verse 20 with me it says in it that is in the ark the ark that Noah built, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Now that one's tough too, isn't it? You see how thorny these passages are. We see a lot of the ideas that uh, Peter sprinkles throughout that little couple of verses. The ark is there, baptism, the water that came upon the earth. What is all that about? Well, first of all, let's start with what these verses do not mean. And I trust that everyone will agree on this, that Peter does not mean that the water of baptism saves anybody. I realize that he does say there that this water symbolizes baptism, that now saves you also. But that does not mean literally. You've got to compare Scripture to Scripture. He wouldn't say that. He wouldn't mean that. Instead, what I think Peter's doing is he's using shorthand. He's using some words that he knows his audience would understand. He's just using shorthand language. And in fact, he's very careful to say at the end of verse 21... That the water of baptism alone doesn't save anybody. It is, he says, by the resurrection of Christ that it saves. So what Peter is telling us here is that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And baptism is a symbol. In fact, let me tell you three things that I do believe Peter wants to communicate here. Three things. Number one, Noah's Ark was a symbol of salvation. Noah's ark was a symbol of salvation. Just as Noah trusted in God for his salvation by hiding inside the ark. So we, you and I, must trust God for our salvation by hiding in Jesus. See, in a way, the ark was an illustration of Jesus. As you trust in Jesus, you are hidden from God's judgment. You are protected. You are safe because of your faith in Christ. So Noah's Ark was a symbol of salvation. Secondly, I think what Peter wants us to hear is that the flood was a symbol of cleansing, cleansing from sin. When the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, that was God's way of cleansing the earth of human sin. So, in like manner, the water of baptism, when we have a baptism up here, The water of baptism is a symbol of the blood of Jesus and of the work of the Holy Spirit that cleanses human beings from sin. Do you see that connection? The water of the flood cleansed from sin. The water of baptism symbolizing the blood of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit that cleanses us from sin. And then the third thing that I want us to hear Peter say is that baptism is important. No, it doesn't save you and it's not essential for your salvation. If you repent and believe in Jesus and die and you're not baptized that doesn't affect your eternity. Remember the thief on the cross? He he was born again, he was saved by faith in Christ. He was not baptized. So baptism is not necessary for salvation, but Peter Peter would get us to know that baptism is important. Jesus commanded us to baptize people. It's part of the great commission. You shouldn't take it lightly. Because see, when you are baptized, what you're saying is you're identifying yourself as a, as a follower of Jesus. You're making a public stand for Jesus Christ when you're baptized. You're saying, I'm, break, I'm breaking with the old life and I'm saying yes to the new life. I'm pledging, I'm pledging, I'm promising to follow Jesus from here on out. In fact, Peter even calls it there in verse 21, the pledge or the promise Of a good conscience towards God. So to be an unbaptized Christian. Is a contradiction in terms. In fact I'll go one step further and say. To be an unbaptized Christian. That is to know Jesus. To love Jesus. To follow Jesus. And yet willfully to say. I don't want to be baptized. Or I'm just going to put it off forever. Is sin. You need to obey Christ if you are a believer in Jesus, and be baptized. So if you're an unbaptized Christian this morning, I would just say to you, please, let's talk. Talk to me or one of the other pastors or an elder or deacon here, and we'll take the necessary steps to see that you are obedient to Christ. And it'll be a blessing to you and to the rest of the church. Okay, I don't know if those trees are cleared away for you, but now let's go to the forest. Let's look at what this passage of Scripture is, uh, is really aiming at in our lives as a church today, I want to talk to you about courage and where it comes from. And to help me with this, I've asked Hannah Stoker to come up here. Hannah is the daughter of Tim and Jan Stoker, and I'm going to ask her some questions. Do you remember, some of you, that Hannah was able to memorize the entire uh, Catechism for Young Children? And here you go, Hannah. And she was uh, up here on stage a few months ago, and I asked her several representative questions, and she did really well. So I wanted her to help us understand courage a little bit by by asking her some questions. So here we go. Uh, Hannah, what offices has Christ?
0: Christ has three offices.
1: What are they?
0: The offices of a prophet and of a priest and of a king.
1: How is Christ a prophet?
0: Because he teaches us the will of God.
1: How is Christ a priest?
0: Because he died for our sins and pleads with God for us.
1: How is Christ a king?
0: Because he rules over us and defends us.
1: Why do you need Christ as a prophet?
0: Because I am ignorant.
1: Why do you need Christ as a priest?
0: Because I am guilty.
1: And why do you need Christ as a king?
0: Because I am weak and helpless.
1: Great. Thanks, Hannah. Appreciate that. Now, what you've just heard are the three keys to courageous living. I asked the question, where does courage come from? That's where it comes from. Jesus Christ, your prophet, your priest, and your king. What I'd like to do is use those three offices of Christ that Hannah just reminded us about as a skeleton for our study of these verses in 1 Peter 3. Christ is your prophet. What does that mean? Jesus came to be your prophet to free you from ignorance. And if you know him as your prophet, he'll give you courage. He came to be your prophet to free you from ignorance. Now, what is a prophet anyway? A prophet is someone who proclaims the word of God. A prophet is someone who says, thus says the Lord. A prophet preaches and teaches the Word of God so that the people of God might know the will of God. That's a prophet. Remember verse 19? I said that we would return to it. Verse 19 says that Jesus, through the Spirit, went and preached to the spirits in prison. See, that verse says Jesus is our prophet. He's our preacher. He proclaims the Word of God, the will of God, to the people of God. Now see, that is one of the reasons that some of us often lack courage in our lives. It's because we're not firmly established upon the word of God. We haven't been listening to Jesus, our prophet. In other words, what I'm saying is we don't know this book well enough. Perhaps we don't read it consistently or listen to it carefully Maybe Sunday school is kind of low, low, low priority. Maybe worship is something you come to when you when you feel like it. And so you're not really firmly grounded in God's Word. Or maybe you do read it. Maybe you do attend worship regularly, but you fail to apply the Word of God when the rubber hits the road in a particular situation that comes your way. And so when calamity comes, because you haven't been really listening to the Word, you're devastated. You're shocked that something would happen bad in your life. It's because you're ignorant. Ignorant of God's will and word. But this Bible here says that Jesus is our prophet. See, he teaches us truth, he illumines our minds, he reveals God's ways to us so that we're not blown away when calamity happens. Jesus gives us insight into the grander purposes of God, and it's all right here on the pages. Of God's scriptures. Just as Jesus preached to Noah's contemporaries through Noah. Like I was saying earlier. So he preaches to you and me today. Through his word. And through faithful preachers and teachers. And if Noah's contemporaries. Listen to this. If Noah's contemporaries had listened to Noah. They would have known that judgment was approaching. And they would have repented. But Noah's contemporaries weren't listening to him were they? And so they are not in heaven today. They are in hell. They are spirits in hell. See, what you don't know can kill you. Jesus wants to reveal God's truth to you. Just like Hannah said in that answer, He teaches us the will of God. This is why it's important that you and I be regularly in the the Word. I know I hammer on that a lot, but it's something I believe in very strongly. And so you and I must be readers of God's Word, the Bible, on your own, one-on-one with God, in your family, in groups, in your youth ministry, at UCF, in your life group, and here at church as a congregation. Can I just can I just take the opportunity to plug this little sign-up slip? Because on here are some ways to say to us that I really do want... To learn God's word better, I want to be discipled. We have we believe in discipleship here, and we have D groups. We can put you in a D group if you just check this little box that says I would like to be discipled. It's a way, one way among others, that people can be better and more firmly established in God's word. So please, don't minimize the importance of listening to Jesus, who is our prophet. Earlier this morning, uh, Vic. Let us in prayer for Lynn Shinalith. Let me. Can I just take you a moment and tell you that Lynn's cancer is worsened. She's declining. She's at the hospital now. She's getting double radiation for different sources of pain. And this afternoon, the family is going to be talking about what's next. Um, I've, asked, I've been asked to tell you that this afternoon, the family asks for no visitors, because they're going to be talking and would prefer to have space to work through those issues. But if there's, a, if you would like to to just tell Lynn that you're loving her, you pray, you're praying for her, you care for her and the family. There's a poster out in the foyer on a table, and that poster is going to be taken to Lynn and John this afternoon. And Mike and Michelle have given us this poster as a way to put your name on there and a little message. And so it's out there. If after the service you want to give them a greeting, that would be the way to do it. But the thing about John and Lynn that I did want to say is that they are, like many of us, people who have been established in God's Word. And in her recent Caring Bridge journal entry, here is what they said to us, to uh, those of us who, who love them and know them. They say, how are we doing? We've been surrounded by the Lord's grace and presence A calm that is unnatural. We're on new ground in this journey, but his presence is sure and his hand firm. His light will lead us on and he will not let us fall. If you know John and Lynn, you know where the source of that hope comes from. It comes from Jesus, their prophet, who has taught them well and they've listened well. Suffering's hard. Cancer's hard. Unemployment is hard. But with Jesus as your prophet, you can have courage that your suffering, as John Shanawha said, is something that will still give you a calm that is unnatural. So listen as Jesus teaches you as your prophet. He's your prophet so that you're free from ignorance. But secondly, what we learn from Peter is that he came to be your priest to free you from guilt. Jesus came to be your priest to free you from guilt. Now, what's a priest? Well, a priest is someone who stands between you and God. A priest is someone who is your mediator. He represents you before God. He intercedes for you. A priest is someone who reconciles you to God because you needed that reconciliation. You were at enmity with God and you were objectively guilty. Verse 18 talks about Jesus being your priest. It says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's one of the best summaries of the gospel in the whole Bible. Let's look at it phrase by phrase. First, in verse 18, Peter says Christ died for your sins. Some versions say Christ suffered for sins. It means the same thing. We're talking about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Jesus bore your sins in his own body and he absorbed in himself the punishment that you and I deserve from a holy God. Next phrase, once for all. That means that there's nothing more you need to do. Nothing you do can make God love you any more than He already does. Nothing you do can make God love you any less than He already does. Jesus paid it all. Have you heard that definition of religion versus Christianity? The difference between the two? Religion is spelled D-O. Do. Do this. Do that. And God will give you favor. Pray. Pray. Go to church, give money, be nice, be good, obey the Ten Commandments. If you do enough of those things, do them enough consistently, Jesus will love you. God will give you favor. Uh, That's what religion says. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. It's done for you. Jesus paid it all on the cross. Next phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, the Son of God died For the enemies of God. The sinless died for the sinful. The holy died for the unholy. Why did he do it? Last phrase says to bring you to God. See you and I were alienated from God. We were at distance from him because of our sin. But Jesus made you acceptable to God. And you know that word acceptable. It just doesn't do it for me. Because there are a lot of things in my life that I find acceptable but I don't like them very much. Like uh, we have a 2002 Kia Optima. About once every five times when we're driving it, it drives real rough. And we've just decided we're going to live with that. We accept that. But we don't like that. Is that how we are with God? He just accepts us and tolerates us and puts up with us? No. Like Jonathan said earlier, God finds us beautiful. God finds us delightful. And it's because Jesus has brought us to God. Ephesians 3.12 says that you may now approach God with freedom and confidence. Jesus, in other words, took your place. He took your blame. Your guilt is gone forever. Josh Harris wrote a book. You know the name Josh Harris? He wrote a book that just came out a few weeks ago, in fact, called Dug Down Deep. And he tells in that book about a vivid dream that he once had. And this dream he actually wrote about many years ago in a magazine that he used to edit. But he put this dream back in his book that just came out a few weeks ago. Let me tell you what he dreamed. And you've probably heard this too. He dreamed about a room. In fact, he calls his dream The Room. He dreamed that he saw in his dream a big room and it was filled with card catalogs like the old style libraries used to have. And he walked over to these drawers and every single drawer had his name on it. And every single drawer was labeled with the name of one of his sins. He saw in one of the drawers the label, friends that I've betrayed. Another drawer was labeled, lies I've told. Another drawer, lustful thoughts. Another drawer, cheat cheating things that i've done and so on and so forth and he pulled out in his dream he pulled out every drawer and every drawer was absolutely filled to overflowing with little index cards that cited specific sins that went along with that particular category and he pulled them up and he started weeping as he saw all of these cards and every single one of them had his name on it it was his sin and he, he wondered, could I get rid of this? Is there some way to erase it? And no, in his dream he said, no, the past is the past. It's history. It cannot be changed. And so tears just began to flow down Harris's cheeks in his dream until Jesus entered this same room. And Jesus walked over to these drawers and pulled out every single drawer and then lifted up every single card and every single card that had Josh Harris's name on it that was one of his sins, Jesus wrote his own name on it in blood over the name of Josh Harris so that Jesus said, that sin I'll take on myself. That sin I'll say to God, count it against me. That sin, God, you punish me for that one. Every single one of an infinity number of these different index cards in this room. And in his dream. He, he had never before been so aware of his guilt. On the one hand. Nor of the freedom from guilt. That Josh Harris through faith in Christ. Had experienced. Now that story. Here's the interesting thing about it. That story went on, has been on the internet for years. And it's been circulating. And everybody's probably heard that story. Well someone who is a follower of Islam. Saw that story. And decided he liked some of it, but didn't like other parts of it. And so this Muslim person changed the ending to the story. And it's out there on the internet now for Muslim people. You know how the Muslim version of that dream ends? Let me read it to you. I'll read it to you word for word. Here's the Muslim version of the end. After this person walks in the room and sees all of these awful things that he has done, here's how it ends. And then the tears came. I began to weep, sobs so deep that the hurt started in my stomach and shook through me. I fell on my knees and cried. I cried out of shame from the overwhelming shame of it all. The rows of file shelves swirled in my tear-filled eyes. No one must ever, ever know of this room. I must lock it up and hide the key. And that's the ending. The only thing I can do about my sin is lock it away and hide and hope nobody ever sees it. The Muslim version. See, no Jesus, no hope. No Savior, no blood on the cross. Only shame, only guilt remains. The Gospel says, it's a different version, isn't it? The Gospel says that Jesus... Is your great high priest who once for all offered his life for him for yourself as your guilt offering he lived the perfect life you were supposed to live, He died the death you deserve to die. Judgment day has already occurred for every single person who is in the ark that is hiding in Jesus, trusting in his blood. Judgment day has already happened so that you can look forward to Judgment Day with joy. Because you know your sins are forgiven and your guilt is gone. It's like that song we often sing Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. See, Jesus is your prophet. He frees you from ignorance. Jesus is your priest. He frees you from guilt. And the last key for courageous living is knowing that Jesus is your king and he came to free you from fear. Jesus came to be your king to free you from fear. Look at verse 22. And then we're done. Verse 22 says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at, the, as, and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. That's a vision of Jesus, our king. What does a king do? I know that we here in the States don't have much of a vision of kingship. We elect our president kings as sort of Europe, you know, centuries ago, medieval or whatever. But get into the mindset of knowing what a king does. He rules over his people. He conquers his enemies. He defends his country. Similarly, King Jesus rules over his church. He defeated our enemy Satan at the cross definitively. He defeated death at the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. Yes, I know Satan is still very, very active in this world and in your life. He's still accusing us. He's still tempting us. I know that death is a horrible enemy. But those enemies can do nothing more than what King Jesus permits them to do. Matthew 28, 18 says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 9 says that God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, whether things on earth or in heaven or under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. And so because of him being our supreme authority... That does a death blow to to us living in fear. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. And you know what he's doing right now while he sits there at the right hand of God? He waits. Hebrews 10, 12 says, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Nothing happens in your life or in this universe that God doesn't supremely approve of and somehow it goes through his Nail-pierced hands. Jesus is your prophet, your priest, and your king. Christian, believe that and live with courage. Make it practical. How, How could you make this practical? Think of a takeaway. You're going into a situation in which you need wisdom. Pray to Jesus, Lord, be my prophet. Reveal to me your will and your word. Remind me of the truth that I know. Be my prophet. You're feeling the accusation of the enemy. You're feeling guilt back heaped upon you. Jesus, be my priest. Remind me. I trust that your blood has paid it all. Be my priest right now. You're in a situation in which you're afraid. Of what's going to happen. Jesus, be my king. See, I want you to memorize prophet, priest, king. Take those three offices and use them, live them, rehearse them. We say sometimes around here, preach the gospel to yourself. A way to do that is to say, Jesus, you're my prophet, priest, and king. You can sing with the hymn writer, My God is reconciled, His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Let's pray. And I wonder if there's someone here today among us who just doesn't have this assurance that we're talking about. Maybe you're afraid of Judgment Day because you've never actually said to God, forgive me. And make me your child. I wonder if, if, you, if you feel the Holy Spirit pulling at you right now. Would you pray this prayer along with me silently? Just make this prayer that I'm about to pray your own prayer. And turn it toward God. Father I'm a sinner. And I know that I need to be forgiven. I've never asked you to take my sins away. Jesus would you be my prophet? I'm ignorant and I don't know what I should believe. Be my prophet. Be my teacher. Jesus, be my priest. I'm guilty. I feel shameful. I, I still feel that sins are staring me in the eye and I, I can't forget the past. I can't move on. Be my priest. And Jesus, I live in fear and helplessness. I, I, I'm, I'm afraid of everything around the next corner. I need you to be my king. Would you be my king? Would you be my Lord? The one who calls the shots. Father, I believe that you sent Jesus to be my Savior. And so I here and now put my trust and hope in him. I repent. I turn from sin. I turn from the old and ask you to take me on into a new life. Show me what it is to be your child. Forgive me when I fail and help me to live for you. Father, I pray that if there's somebody here today who said something like that to you, that he or she would know that you love forgiving us sinners. You love to invite children of uh, the enemy, children of the world into the family, seat them at the table. And so thank you, Father, that you love us and that you sent Jesus to prove it. Would you help us, every one of us, to live every moment conscious of Jesus being our prophet, our priest, and our king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.